Welcome to the Bully Pulpit from the University of Southern California Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. I'm honored to be welcoming all of you to the 15th annual Herbert G. Klein Lecture on Civic and Community Leadership. It's the very first one that we're hosting virtually. And the prestigious Herbert Klein Lecture serves as a platform for a range of nationally recognized experts and leaders to speak on civic leadership, community activism, and political participation to honor the legacy of Herb Klein and the far-reaching impact of his contributions to California and to our country. Herb Klein served in the U.S. Navy and in the White House. He was the first director of communications during the Nixon administration. He was also a veteran journalist and a newsman for six decades. He was editor-in-chief of the Copley newspapers until he was 85 years old. Even after he retired, he remained a consultant, evidence of his tireless commitment to civic leadership. And as if that's not enough, he was also a proud USC trustee, dedicated alumnus, mentor for students, faculty, university administrators, and deans, proud husband and father in the Klein family, who are most grateful to welcome to our audience once again. This year, our lecture on the future of California comes in the form of a discussion between some of the nation's most celebrated political voices. Our moderator today is Jim Brulte, former chairman of the California Republican Party. He served in the California State Legislature from 1990 to 2004. During his time in office, Mr. Brulte became his party's leader in both the California Assembly and later in the California Senate, becoming the only freshman in California history to lead a party in both legislative bodies. Capital Weekly wrote that, quote, over the last 15 years, there has been no more enduring force in California Republican politics than Jim Brulte. I'm also honored to introduce two California State Treasurers to you. First, our current treasurer, Fiona Ma. Fiona served on the San Francisco Board of Supervisors, served in the California State Assembly, led the California State Board of Equalization, and now manages more than $2 trillion in annual transactions for the fifth largest economy in the world in her capacity as our state's 34th treasurer. She's also the first woman of color and the first woman certified public accountant ever elected to this position. Joining Fiona is former Center for the Political Future teaching fellow and our former state treasurer, John Chung. Mr. Chung served as the state controller from 2007 to 2014 and helped save our state a record $9.5 billion in fraud, waste, and abuse that he uncovered. He was our state's 33rd treasurer and a very popular one, which helped him launch an impressive run for the California governor's office. As the state's banker, Mr. Chung oversaw trillions of dollars in annual transactions, managed a $75 billion investment portfolio, and was the nation's largest issuer of municipal bonds. Ladies and gentlemen, you're in for a special treat with this year's Herbert G. Klein Lecture. Mr. Brulte, the floor is yours. Well, thank you, Kami. Fiona, John, good to see you. So let's start out with California. California can look like two different worlds. 
In some ways, we're extraordinary. We're the fifth largest economy in the world. We're the high-tech capital of the world. We have world-class universities. On the other hand, almost half the nation's homeless live here. We have some of the highest tax rates in America. And there are more and more stories about people leaving uh, this great state. So can we discuss this seemingly uh, disparate disconnect? How can California be so successful on one hand and yet have so many unresolved social and economic issues on the other? Uh, John, you want to go first? Uh, let me defer to the current treasurer. She's in office. Nice, nice suck up. That's uh, <laughs> the way to do it. Um, yes, um, it, it is uh, quite the dilemma that we are the fifth largest economy, uh, yet there is an ever-growing uh, increase in the wealth gap as well as the income gap here in the state of California. Um, partly, uh, we're you know we've got great schools. Uh, we've got Silicon Valley, um, biotech, the film industry, uh, the weather, um, which I think is one of our biggest selling points here in California, and the diversity. Um, however, some of the industries uh, that are here, like our tourism industry, uh, really depends on um, you know minimum wage uh, type workers. Agriculture is also where the leaders in agriculture production in the uh, the nation, but that also uh, the workers tend to be paid on more of a minimum wage scale. And so that also, you know, in order to support all of the other economic drivers, um, the supporters or the cast of folks um, aren't necessarily paid uh, as high as we would like to. And so that has created uh, an issue. Um, obviously, we are going through a housing crisis, which we are uh, working very, very diligently uh, at the governor's office, our office, and we could talk a little bit about that a little later to address so that uh, that does not become uh, an issue for people moving out and just trying to stay competitive with other states that are luring a lot of the jobs and the businesses away, especially our high net worth individuals. We are highly dependent on high net worth individuals here uh, in our tax system, as well as some of our, you know, uh, initiatives like our No Place Like Home initiatives that will house formerly homeless, as well as provide wraparound mental health services, depends on the repayment from the millionaire's tax passed uh, through Prop 64, uh, Gerald Steinberg's initiative. So a lot of uh, a lot of issues, I can't pinpoint it to one, but perhaps, you know, the amazing John Chung has some other insights. Very good. So uh, let me begin, first of all, by thanking Kami for this invitation to join all of us. The, uh, the last time I saw Jim and Fiona, the three of us, we were in China, the, uh, trying to increase uh, trade between China and California. Uh, l- let me take a little bit of a different approach than our astute treasurer. California operates, in essence, like multiple islands. So the, where we, we have pockets of extraordinary opportunity, uh, there's a stu- there's a study from a university up north that talks about you know the you know part of your success being access to information. Uh, a lot of our islands here, and I the, I'll be part of a discussion that's taking place between CETF. I don't know if Barbara O'Connor has joined this conversation and uh, USC about the digital divide. So you can be downtown Los Angeles, and you could be. Uh, wealthy, or you could be lower income, right? Access uh, to broadband has a phenomenal economic, educational 
impact on families throughout the state of California. So that's one example. I also saw a, a friend that signed up for this, a, a dear friend of both Fiona and uh, mine, uh, Julia Gao. Uh, Julia was president of East West Bank. Uh, she is a founder of a bank in New York. Uh, we know that there's, uh, there's an incredible dichotomy in, in regards to financial inclusion. Uh, so, you know, part of the pockets, uh, as we see consolidation in the financial sector, uh, you'll have uh, Latinx, you'll have Blacks, you'll have women and others who don't have access to the financial services for personal growth or for entrepreneurship. Uh, Julius starting a new bank based in New York uh, with uh, female leadership, right? So it's that type of innovation that's that type of forward thinking that's required. I'm hoping the, and a lot of that's going to take both public and private sector leadership. One of the things that we have to spark is that the, uh, the right, and we've had a lot of lack of leadership. I don't want to get partisan uh, during this conversation, but, you know, we're, we're getting our butts kicked on so many different fronts, right? And so this conversation at USC is fantastic. It's absolutely critical. America's falling behind in quantum computing and hypersonic activity, artificial intelligence, uh, cryptocurrency, the, uh, you know, all those spaces. So hopefully, uh, you know, we can spark the bright minds at USC, those who are tied to USC and the leadership that we have here, whether it's Jim in the Republican Party and Fiona in the Democratic Party, uh, to try to create a renaissance in our country. Thanks, John. Let me uh, also just say for the audience, you, you had heard in her introduction, Fiona is the largest issuer of municipal bonds uh, in the country. She is uh, currently in the market. She's got uh, um, activities in the market. So um, we're going to go out of our way to try not to ask her a speculative question. But since this is about the future of California, so much of this is speculative. But if Fiona defers on a question. It's not because she doesn't have thoughts. It's just we want to make sure we don't have a, an SEC violation uh, in front of the 600 plus of you who are who are on this call. So let me follow up and I'll, I'll uh, go to you, John, uh, since you just answered. Um, one estimate that we saw last year is that over half of those who live in California are actually considering moving out because of the high cost of living. So why is living here, why is the cost of living here so high? And are there concrete steps that you think policymakers could take to help reduce the cost of living? Uh, so, yes, when you think about the essential elements in somebody's life, the by far the largest is the cost of housing. So if you're looking at the median price of a house in the state of California relative to the median price in the United States of America, it's close to 90% higher. And so when you look at the numbers of affordability, somebody who can, uh, their cost of housing is less than 30% of their income. Uh, California has numbers that aren't even close uh, to that 30%. And when you can't afford, you know, that roof over your head, that puts many families behind. And then what else do you need? You need to, you need to commute uh, for personal activity or to get to your work. Uh, California has larger transportation costs than others. So when you start off with those issues, uh, Northern California, it fluctuates, but the lack of uh, available healthcare providers uh, and lack of choices oftentimes drives up healthcare costs, uh, especially when you have less 
uh, flexibility in regards to choices. And so the essentials in somebody's lives tend to be more expensive. Uh, a lot of this varies, as I stated in my initial comments, by neighborhood. But generally, uh, those three things make California much more expensive. And th- those numbers, about 53%, I think about leaving California all the time, the, uh, just, you know, whether it's job offers or just the cost of living, uh, at the end of the day, this is still home. The, uh, it's just, you know, people are looking at alternatives. There was an article from, uh, the San Francisco Chronicle last week talking about what do people actually do? Uh, so that you had, uh, I guess 80,000 families that migrated outside of the city county of San Francisco last year, uh, but if you look at the top 10 uh, places they moved to, they were all in California. If you looked at the top 20, there were three uh, that moved outside of the state of California they moved to. So out of that 80,000 households, I think it was uh, 299 or w- whatever, uh, to Austin, Texas, one more than uh, households moving to Denver, and then uh, a third, I think it was 175 to Portland, Oregon. So if you add the top three locations that they're moving outside of the state of California, it's less than 1%. Madam Treasurer, do you uh, have any comments? What would you recommend to policymakers or what have you recommended to policymakers? Yeah, so um, I just want to go back to a little data. Um, Even after the Federal Tax Cuts and Jobs Act enacted in December 2017, we thought that there would be some out migration of high net worth individuals due to the cap in the state and local, um, you know, tax deduction. However, we did not see that uh, consistently in 2016, 2017, and 2018. Uh, we actually showed more uh, tax returns for people making one million dollars and more. So, um, I know we hear of some millionaires or billionaires moving out of the state, but so far the Tax returns uh, did not show that in 2016, 2017, and 2018. However, given the pandemic, uh, I think with people working from home, uh, wanting perhaps a bigger place, space, um, spending more time with family, I think those numbers will change uh, moving out. But uh, for migration data in 2019, according to the American Community Survey, uh, it shows that for uh, the number of people that moved out of the state, we had some international residents moving back into the state. So we have not had any, um, you know, net changes in population in California, uh, at least uh, for the year uh, 2019 and 2020. But we will see again whether that has changed because of tax policies and uh, federal, um, you know, restrictions that uh, make it difficult for some individuals to come to the U.S. I just also want to point out that before the pandemic, uh, we were doing really well in California. Uh, we continue to be the fifth largest economy even during this pandemic. Uh, last year, two of the major credit rating agencies upgraded California's bond rating because of uh, decisions made in the past, whether it was Governor Jerry Brown putting more money into the rainy day fund uh, because we can now pass a budget on time. As Jim and uh, John remember, there were times when we would get to October and the budget uh, did not pass. And those changes have significantly impacted the way credit rating agencies uh, have looked at California. And in addition, during this pandemic, uh, our credit rating still remains high. We have not been downgraded unlike other states. So, those are good news. And 
We have been in the market uh, since last April at the start of the pandemic, and both um, uh, investors are still very, very uh, supportive and really are buying a lot of our California bonds. So that's on the flip side, the good news. Let, let me add one additional fact to Fiona's point. The, uh, th- this, shape, this recovery is a K-shaped recovery. Uh, so when Fiona was talking about the number of millionaires, this state is heavily dependent on, in a given year, 38,000 to 70,000 multimillionaires uh, uh, or people who earn a million or more in their income, right? That group year after year is not the same group, right? The, it's not every year that Facebook goes public. Uh, this, this recovery and the uh, performance that we've seen on the equity markets has created additional millionaires, right? The, you look at the FANG stocks, FANG stocks, and you look at the acceleration of technology here in the United States of America, uh, it created a lot more wealth. And that's why the numbers that were originally projected for budgetary losses uh, for the state of California were not realized. One of the things that we're going to have to push forward uh, is understanding unless we start investing more in the digitization of this economy, and this is not only the private sector, our, our government's need to catch up because we're behind internationally. Uh, if, right, you look to Japan, you look to Korea, you look to China uh, to see what the future is going to look like, right? Because they are more technologically advanced. They're five to seven years ahead of us. So the trends that we started witnessing uh, during this COVID-19, uh, that growth uh, is, is something that we need to invest in to make sure that the United States remains internationally competitive. So John mentioned uh, our housing affordability is 90% higher. So let's talk a little bit about housing. Um, We obviously have an affordability crisis in California. We have a housing shortage in California. Some say that the California Environmental Quality Act, uh, zoning issues, uh, legal liabilities for people who develop are uh, part of the reasons we lack enough housing. Others say there's a lack of an upfront infrastructure program. You know, if you're going to build uh, a, a thousand homes in a development before you sell the first home, you have to pay the schools their fees. You have to pay the local government their fees. Uh, you know, on a, on a thousand homes you sell, you don't make any profit until you're into the 600 home. It's the last homes in the development that, that make the, uh, the income for you. Um, uh, let's start with Fiona. Can you comment on what steps you think we could take to make uh, California housing a little bit more affordable? Yeah, so uh, I chair two affordable housing finance agencies, uh, the California Tax Credit Allocation Committee, as well as the California Debt Limit Allocation Committee. And so we allocate the 9% and the 4% federal tax credits, as well as the private activity tax-exempt bonds. So a couple things. Uh, number one, with the demise of the redevelopment agencies in about 2012, uh, I think that has really impacted uh, the pace of our housing development. Uh, each year, those RDAs would put in about a billion dollars into and help subsidize affordable housing projects in our communities. So take that out. Then you do have the NIMBYs and the CEQAs uh, and other costs, uh, the legislature every year. I was part of the legislature. You were part of the legislature, right? We're always trying to, you know, make California cleaner and greener. And that those type of uh, requirements uh, also increase the cost of housing. So 
You could see that the state legislators, many of them served at the local level, so they understand the difficulties, but many of them have been proposing bills that would either, uh, you know, um, supersede uh, some of the local barriers uh, or create certain mandates in terms of whether communities are keeping up with the RENA numbers and just trying to push a little bit uh, at the state level since there is a lot of resistance at the local level. Um, internally, the governor has two housing agencies, uh, California Housing and Community Development, as well as the California Housing Finance Agency. So the four agencies, we have worked really hard together over the last two years to streamline um, uh, you know, processes and procedures. Uh, we have joint applications now. We try to align our deadlines and really try to be more focused on the stakeholders. Uh, so we understand that this is a public-private partnership, or at least I understand, and therefore the private sector is our customers, our partners, and I convened a 30-person working group, stakeholder working group, to help us revise our um, our regulations to come up with a system that is fair to allocate the bonds and the credits. And I think you will find that the community is really supportive and very, very happy that they have some sort of input into the process and that government is not creating the barriers that is hampering them. So last year, we, uh, we approved 144% more new housing construction units than uh, the prior year. And we've done more in terms of approving housing for very low, extremely low communities here in the state of California. So I think we are doing our job as the governor has uh, led the way and set the goal of 3.5 million new homes by 2025. But I think where we need to do more is the missing middle, workforce housing, uh, people who are making too much money that don't qualify for affordable housing yet don't have enough savings to purchase their first home, for example. Um, I think we need to do more in that area and in infrastructure. Since the Great Recession, many of the cities and counties that used to provide the money for infrastructure, for the roads, the pipes, the tunnels, uh, the cable, the Wi-Fi, broadband, uh, no longer have the money. And we have been trying to establish a infrastructure revolving loan fund to help those single home builders uh, be able to uh, to build, but also to build affordably, especially in those communities uh, that have a lot of you know workers that just need their first starter home. And so many are out by you. I know, uh, Jim, you understand. And, um, you know, this issue, uh, very, very um you know, very clearly, but that's what we really need right now is an infrastructure revolving loan fund. But the banks don't want to fund that type of project because of the collateral, the revenues, uh, they're into short term, you know, gains as soon as possible and creating housing for our next many generations requires a substantial amount of infrastructure dollars that are just not there yet. And that is also slowing down, uh, the production of single family homes.
John? Yeah, let me reframe uh, what Fiona said. Uh, and Jim, you were in the legislature. You were leading the legislature when part of these discussions were taking place, right? The, when you look at the way we finance state and local government in the state of California, for local governments, there's a disincentive to building housing, right? The, the, if, you, if you build more houses and you have additional residents, you have additional services without necessarily receiving the uh, financial remuneration for bringing those residents in, in to have that type of housing, right? People want that sales tax activity, or at least they used to, uh, based on the old economy. You know, when California's tax structure was created, uh, originally it was property taxes in 1929, we brought in sales taxes in 1933, we brought in the franchise tax or otherwise known as the income tax created on a industrial based economy. Today we have a digital economy where 66% of our economic activity is services, uh, ex- uh, escaping, uh, the sales tax, right? But the, you still have sufficient amounts where the uh, local elected officials want that. One of the things that we have to do a much better job at uh, is th- that uh, we, we need to make sure that the elected officials, both state and local, make the difficult decisions. When costs increase, we're going to have to uh, raise the additional revenues and actually spend it on what we say we're going to tax people on, Right. People will raise the monies and then use it for other purposes. We raise money for transportation and we use it not for transportation, but we use it for other activities. Uh, and there's a reason uh, that you'll see hookup fees for small businesses uh, in some Bay cities. Uh, I was talking to two business owners. They said, you know, to start my restaurant or start this other company, this, the sewage hookup fee was one in one case 36000 The other case, it was over 60000 It's because they did not increase the prices over a period of time where everybody was bearing their fair share. They punted that decision so that business owners today are covering the difference because they didn't charge those prices for earlier businesses. We need more adult leadership making the difficult decisions so that is, is in fact, fair to everybody uh, in the process. You know, John, you raise a very interesting point. It is, it is true. Um, Democrat voters, independents, and Republicans will actually vote to raise taxes if A, you let them know where it's going to be spent, and B, they actually think you're spending their, your money efficiently. Uh, voters have shown in California their willingness to raise taxes on, on themselves. So let's, we talked about housing. By the way, I'm very excited. We already have 18 questions. Go ahead, John. Something that I advocated when I was in government was real-time transparency. So if you're going to have, you're going to spend that money, let's create a website to show how that money is actually spent, right? So I was talking about transportation projects. How many people do we have working on the project? You know, what is that money being spent for? What, what products or services are they short for, right? Post it on the website, have real-time bidding for the services or uh, products that need to be purchased. That's how, right, the especially with the digitization of the economy, that's how you can start to build trust, right? You can actually, in some, if you want to, some case, just webcam that, that activity that's taking place. Great. I just want to add that uh, John did so much uh, when he was the controller and the treasurer. I remember he had the countdown clock on his website as controller, and I would look to that to see when the state was going to run out of money, because at that point is when all the legislature's 
legislators would get together and vote on a budget. Um, but until then, I knew oh, we still have money, the countdown clock, it's okay. And so I just want to thank John because he is, um, you know, he did, he, he did a lot for transparency and accountability. And kudos to Fiona. Fiona, I think during that time of the financial crisis, I, I think uh, Fiona was one of four legislators there, right? So when you look at 120 legislators, Fiona is one of the four legislators that would call me. And then you, you know about Fiona's work ethic, but she would call me like, or leave a message like at 4 a.m. You know, I was already awake, but she would, 4 a.m. She goes, the, uh, hey, I'm going to do this radio interview. Give me the up-to-date spot on where we are with cash for the state of California. Well, very good. So we've asked, we've got, talked about two topics and we already have 20 questions that uh, our uh, viewers want to answer. So let's see if we can hit a couple more topics before we go to them. We talked about uh, the overall climate. We talked about housing. Let's talk a little bit about traffic congestion and understanding that a lot of this is a local government project. First, uh, will high-speed rail ever be completed or in the face of uh, cost overruns and operational funding deficiencies, uh, should it be or will it be abandoned? Fiona, you probably can't touch that because you're selling bonds for that. Are we likely to see a continuation of remote work post-COVID? Um, that's speculative, John. But then, Fiona, I'd like you to come back and uh, share how your employees, you have one of the major departments of the uh, executive branch, uh, how you're allowing your employees to do remote work. And do you envision any of that continuing after the pandemic's over? John, do you want to start with high-speed rail and the promise? Well, right on our trip, we were talking about with some investors, the uh, in all likelihood, no, uh, I wish it was. The uh, For me, it's smarter to do it the you know you know we have really brilliant students uh many first generation going to college that attend uc merced the uh, you know they could be earning six-figure jobs uh in the silicon valley uh except the uh, commute time and residential housing costs are too expensive uh you know when we put in this plan and we designed it we did it for political uh practicality. Uh, we didn't do it for optimization of, uh, you know, building uh, a system that works uh, statewide. Uh, so um, so from north to south, no, but uh, Fiona's working on it. East to west to Las Vegas, uh, looks like there's a, a better possibility. Yeah. So Jim, I could talk a little bit about high-speed rail. Um, when I got to the legislature in 2006, um, I committed to keep the high-speed rail initiative on the ballot. It had been postponed twice, and Governor Schwarzenegger wanted to postpone it again so he could put the money to build more jails. So my slogan was rails, not jails. I went around uh, the state, uh, especially the college campuses, and talked to the young people, and they were all excited about it. They said, why can't I take a train from Merced to L.A. in an hour, or Merced, or Fresno to San Francisco? And even at the height of the recession, November 20, 2008, voters passed the high-speed rail initiative with close to 53%. So uh, we have been building. There are thousands of uh, construction workers out in the Central Valley. Uh, we now, with the new administration, have renewed excitement uh, because the initiative, the way it was written, it was a one-third, one-third, one-third partnership. One-third from the state, 
one third from the federal government and one third from the private sector. And the past uh, four years, we had a lot of resistance from the federal government, which slowed us down. But now with the new Biden administration, we hope that we will get back on track. The private train that John is talking about, Brightline, from Victorville to Las Vegas, is a private sector uh, endeavor. However, they are working closely with our high-speed rail authority to make sure that the tracks align, that the signals align, that whatever train uh, we purchase is going to continuously be able to ride the high-speed California high-speed rail tracks through the Central Valley and connect to their train system that they plan to go to Rancho Cucamonga that will connect to the, um, the metro rail. So we are trying to ensure connectivity around the state to alleviate traffic. I am a big, big train, you know, supporter uh, at some time, you know, some point as we are getting older, right, John? Uh, we don't want to get in a car. We want to be in a train, plug in, have, you know, our food and drinks, relax, and then get to someplace and, uh, you know, be able to continue with our day. So uh, trains are coming. They're part of our future plan. And I am still very, very active and trying to make sure that it becomes a reality in California. Fiona, do you want to share with us how you're uh, using remote work in your current office, if you are, and if you anticipate post-pandemic, are you seeing greater efficiency, less efficiency? Uh, Yes, pretty much all of my uh, 400 out of 430 employees, pretty much everybody was uh, sent home uh, when the governor issued his executive order. And I still have about 100 employees that have to come to the office because of our cash management, banking services, and security, uh, cybersecurity reasons that we still have people coming physically uh, to the office. Um, efficiency, I don't know. I personally like to go to the office. There's less distractions for me. I think I'm uh, more efficient in the office. However, at home, I'm working more. Uh, and maybe that's a psycho- psychological aspect of being home is that you feel like you have to, you know, start earlier, right? Eight o'clock, we have to work later until 8 p.m. And so being on these Zoom calls is more exhausting for me than being able to see people, uh, connect, have meetings in person. Um, but it's up to the governor, right? The governor has said uh, in the past that he is going to continue a certain uh, amount of telework for state employees. Um, SEIU 1000, we've talked to Yvonne Walker, and I think she is also supportive of a certain amount of adjustments to our state uh, employees. And some jobs um, are better, you know, maybe are more suited where people can work at home, and then some functions, people physically have to be in the office. We are the state government. People expect uh, to have the offices open, to have people to talk to, to assist, to process transactions. So I guess we'll have to see where the governor goes on this. John, do you want to add anything before we hit our last topic? Yeah, a few miscellaneous things that just show how behind government is. The uh, When I assume office... The state treasurer's office, which processes $2 trillion worth of transactions on an annual basis, the, right, and we have short-term uh, cash investment functions anywhere 75 to $95 billion. When I took office, we used to bank by phone or fax. 
Can you imagine as we're processing money for the cities and counties of the state of California, if they said, hey, we want to take out $5 million, uh, our staff would get on the phone with them. And then to validate it, they had to send a fax transaction and we would send it back. Like the, we fixed that so Fiona no longer has to deal with it. One of the things that also, just to show how far behind, right, and it's not unusual for the state of California, the people used to ask me, John, is the treasurer's office cybersecure? I said, we're 100% cybersecure. And they go, what do you mean you're 100% cybersecure? I said, we have everything on paper, right? And what happened is I said, when we had the water pipes break in our office, right, for that whole building, not just the treasurer's office, I said, we're at greater risk because of water pipe leakage than we are cyber attacks. So that just shows the, uh, that work that needs to be done. Great. So let's talk a little bit about climate change. It wouldn't be a, a discussion about California policy without uh, climate change discussion. We're the leader in combating climate change, frankly, not only in this country, but around the world. But let's take it in a little different direction. Uh, we've seen a lot of forest fires, uh, particularly in the north part of the state, over the last decade. Um, we know that in some cases, one forest fire and the uh, amount of emissions it puts up into the atmosphere wipes out all the savings, all the carbon emission savings we get from the policies uh, we've enacted on an annual basis. Um, so, John, why don't you, uh, if this is something you've thought about, you didn't have the uh, benefit or the liability of being in the legislature. So um, what do you think are the next steps in preventing fires and what additional steps can be taken to combat climate change here in California? Yeah, well, clearly California is uh, more forward thinking than a lot of other jurisdictions in regards to climate change policy. The governor put in his budget a, a billion dollars uh, for this upcoming fiscal year in regards to measures to address uh, what's taking place with the wildfires here in the state of California, uh, multiple things need to be done. Uh, cl clearly, we need better community planning, right? We need to make sure that as you do land development uh, in those areas of great risk, uh, that you have defensible spaces, that you have local ordinances and state ordinances that make sure that you have fire prevention measures in place. Uh, we need to make sure that we act uh, to reduce the impact. And so clearly we're going to have to try to clean up the massive biomass, right? It's not, you're not raking leaves here, right? You're looking at a dense biomass. That's not going to be cheap and easy. And then, right, and this can't be partisan. Uh, the, the United States is at great risk for our energy grid. And so whether it's California or what we witnessed the last week uh, in Texas, uh, you know, the uh, COVID was a massive stress test on the infrastructure of the United States. And unfortunately, our country, uh, you know, understood our weaknesses. So we're going to have to address those friction points uh, to upgrade our systems. Treasurer Ma, do you have anything you want to add before uh, I think Kami starts taking questions from the audience? Yeah, so my husband is a firefighter in Ventura County and also participates on a federal response team. Fires start from a number of reasons. Uh, and so when we are in fire season, we really urge everyone to be very, very careful, uh, whether they are having campfires, uh, you know, fireworks, uh, flicking cigarettes out of their car. I mean, it's just runs the gamut. Um, but, you know, water storage, you know, we've been working on water for, for many, many years, um, you know, preparing 
for these type of responses. The drought does not help, but there's not much we can do to, uh, to combat the drought. Uh, but we do have friends at the federal level. Congressman Mike Thompson, for example, uh, allocated a billion dollars over the next 10 years to rebuild housing in fire devastated counties. So that has also sparked a lot more affordable housing in these uh, communities. And then I also chair um, uh, one of the authorities that, uh, that provides a sales tax exemption for companies that want to green and clean and help with climate change, uh, where they can apply for sales tax exemption. And then the governor also has a CalCompetes uh, program uh, also to encourage companies to come and expand and also help with our climate initiative. So the government's doing uh, some assistance, providing some assistance for uh, these fired uh, ravaged communities. But again, we just also need to be more vigilant uh, when it comes fire season and deal with the drought mitigation measures. Well, thank you. So we've touched on uh, four topics and we now have 30 questions from the audience. So uh, Kami, are you taking over? Yes, uh, I've been keeping an eye on our Q&A here. There's a lot of good questions. They're along the lines of education, housing, infrastructure, fraud, waste, transportation, pensions, water, energy, a lot of different areas. When we think about the future, a lot of people think education. So I'd like to read a question from Ken Broad, who asks, and I'm going to read it directly. He says, Fiona mentioned great schools. Well, there's a big dichotomy between higher ed, where California ranks fourth in the U.S. News and World Report ranking of states. However, our K-12 is at 37th. Uh, he writes that San Francisco seems more focused on renaming elementary schools than returning to in-person instruction. His question is, what will make the K-12 system commensurate with California's nation state status? John, I'm going to punt to you. Yeah, I think the question was directed to you. To me? I'm happy to answer it afterwards. The, you're the, like I said, you're the elected office. You always get first shot. <laughs> well, okay. Why don't you talk about it? Because I have to focus on the programs that we're providing. So maybe you could elaborate on your thoughts first, and I'll add what I can. Yeah, the, uh, so I, I think the Governor Brown took the outstanding first steps uh, in this rep- uh, particular regard, right? The we know the substantial underperformance was occurring the, uh, in certain areas where you had, uh, right, well, basically, he redid the formula. So there's a basic formula for the students that attend, but then you get concentration, additional funding uh, based on three categories, foster care kids, uh, kids who low, low income kids and English as a, a second language. Uh, the state still needs to update its formula where it's, where there's a disproportionate amount of money spent for kids that need special assistance. Uh, and then what we need to do is we need to make sure that the part of the demographic challenges is that we're not going to have enough qualified teachers, right? The uh, younger folks just aren't going into the education profession. And so that you're not seeing people with the same expertise and abilities uh, in some of the more challenged school districts, right? So remedying that. And then you always have to have greater accountability. Uh, that's, that's always the difficult area. Uh, you know, a lot of the institutionalized folks don't like to measure performance because they'll say, you know, you're making progress, uh, but you're not the, but you're still underperforming kids from wealthier areas. Uh, yes, we need to take account for all of those things. 
But the fa- at the end of the day, you just have to make sure where, what I care about is the student making progress or is the not student not making progress? You know, what are the fundamental building blocks uh, that's needed for a child? One of those things is we need those measurements. The, uh, it's absolutely devastating today uh, with the digital divide uh, the, and other, other factors. You know, kids are a year, year out of the classroom, right? The, the fundamental neural developments, the fu- fundamental lessons learned, uh, particular junctures in a young kid's life, uh, they're, they're going to miss out. And th- there, there are intermediate and long-term consequences when you're, building, when you're missing out building those fundamental blocks so that you can progress, whether it's your com- uh, language communication or understanding math. Yeah, and I would just like to add that uh, San Francisco just halted uh, the renaming of the schools and they're going to focus on reopening. And that's due to a lot of community uh, pressure. And so you all have a voice here on this webinar and I would encourage you to use it uh, when you support certain initiatives and when you are opposed to it. So that's the latest from San Francisco. Oh, and I didn't want to lose this point. The uh, w- When we were having that housing discussion, oh, Fiona has really spectacular staff, uh, some of them who are uh, participating in this call. So whether it's Audrey Noda or Gloria Lee or Gloria uh, Polito, uh, one of our terrific uh, executive officers for one of the authorities, Katie Selinsky, who the, works on retirement security. Uh, Fiona is an incredibly accessible public official, the, uh, and you have to have staff that's first rate that backs you up. So the you know if you have questions uh, not only here but ask Fiona or the the you know just chat or reach out on on this platform to one of the staff members that I just mentioned. Yeah, thank you. And I have a dedicated email that we set up, um, and it's askfiona at treasure.ca.gov, and Catherine Asprey um, monitors that and has received about 850 COVID-specific constituent questions. So let us know if we could help. Tremendous. Thank you for uh, sharing those resources. Of all the questions that we've received in this Q&A, and folks, these are great questions. Keep uh, submitting them. Uh, The number one theme is is homelessness. I'll read one question to sort of exemplify the tone of the questions. And this one comes from uh, Mark Huffman. Uh, He writes that homelessness has become a worse and worse problem despite all of the additional resources we have allocated to it. He writes, why have the state and local officials become complacent about dealing with it? Businesses and residents will only take so much before they relocate to other areas that don't have the conditions present in places like LA and San Francisco. Related to that question, people have asked about impediments. Why don't we have more affordable housing units that are being built? And others that have asked about zoning and and they've asked about, is it that there's too much regulation that's that's restricting the availability of, uh, of new construction? Um, can you speak more to, the, to these kinds of points related to our housing crisis? Okay, so I'll take a stab at it. You know, I was, I've been in San Francisco since 1988. And I think San Francisco does a fairly good job of taking care of our homeless. Uh, we have built a number of navigation centers, which are big. Uh, we take over perhaps a parking lot and build a site where we bring folks in with their possessions, with their pets, with their girlfriends or boyfriends, with whatever habits they have. We bring them in, we stabilize them, we provide um, you know, on-site wraparound services so that they can feel secure, uh, trust 
you know, uh, professionals uh, to get back on their feet. Not all communities allow some sort of center like this, even though communities, if we could spread it out to help our homeless, especially during this pandemic, uh, where it has exacerbated. But part of that is a lot of local uh, folks want something done, but they don't want it in their neighborhood. So that is part of the reason that we are not able to help as many people as we can. But the last two years, we have issued a billion dollars in bonds to provide housing for formerly homeless individuals with mental health services. We understand that mental health is a big crisis. My mother had mental health all her life. My brother has it. Um, it's not easy. Um, and the services aren't there. They're not available when people need it. Uh, there are no crisis management places that you can go even for 24 hours. Very, very few. We'd like to see more. Uh, and also centers that can accommodate uh, folks who are homeless for, you know, a week, two weeks, maybe a month until they get stabilized and back on their feet. And sometimes that's what they need. Um, you know, when you're homeless and on the street, you don't have a phone sometimes, you don't have ID, you don't have a P.O. box. So how are you supposed to access services or people going to reach out to you unless you provide that space and the infrastructure to get people back on their feet? So this is one of the questions where our markets, our market system doesn't work. The uh, right developers aren't going to take on the homeless issue, right? Because it's not profitable enough. It's an expensive space. So it depends heavily on government policy. Uh, and we have huge financial challenges. Uh, I have one of my star students who's watching this, uh, Becca Zhu, the, from my fall class at the Center for the Political Future. The, one of the things I advocated uh, to my students is if you're passionate about the homeless issue, why don't you become a developer? Now, if you're a developer in the homeless space, you take huge financial risk. You understand the, right, when you're financing a lot of this development in this space, there's federal contribution, there's a state contribution, perhaps a local government contribution, uh, right? And, and that, that person who's low income oftentimes doesn't have the resources or most times doesn't have the resources to make up the difference, right? So the, uh, in, in this state, when I was uh, sharing those authorities that Fiona chairs now, right, we had basically 13 developers in the state of California that we could trust that could handle the risks in this space, not to waste the monies that they were allocated by the government to develop this type of housing. That, that's not a wide and deep enough bench uh, if you're going to take the government approach, right? And then if you want the private sector approach, uh, right, we're going to need the best minds in this country to try to come out and figure out, you know, finan- the uh, financial opportunities that uh, when you do the back of the envelope calculations or actually the real calculations, it works out for them. Such great points. And we're so grateful for your insights. Uh, you know, a lot of our audience has been asking questions Related to fraud and waste in the system, uh, this one from Mark Ney kind of exemplifies uh, the feeling. He says, the efficiency of government has become a problem and high-speed rail is the poster child of this. Is there any appetite for making government less subject to the objections of small minorities, which is the root of the problem, whether it's CEQA, infrastructure contractors, consultants, or others? Uh, related comments talked about the EDD fraud and the unemployment system, uh, and they talked about waste and fraud in other areas. Uh, can you speak to those points about about the fraud and waste that are occurring in the system and, and what you see for California's future, how we can deal with that? Well, I, I would say you need more transparency. 
transparency uh, allows people to see what is happening, where the money is allocated, what people are doing. And without that transparency, uh, it's very difficult to understand. Uh, with the unemployment insurance fraud, um, with the PUA program at the federal level, during at the onset, sorry, at the onset of the pandemic, uh, people were struggling. They lost their jobs because they weren't able to go to work. And so the government, both the federal and the state government, did whatever they could to get assistance out to people as soon as possible. Uh, did they think that there would be, um, you know, hackers, um, you know, trolling around and really sophisticated trying to figure out this system? I don't think that that was planned. Um, back in the Great Recession, we had the same issue where more people were on unemployment and we issued as much as we could and then took people at their word uh, that they were applying and they were the person and they needed the money. But obviously that wasn't the case this last time. And so unfortunately, we're going to have to learn from our mistakes. And like John said, our technology systems are not up to date. Um, we need to do a better job of making sure that we uh, are you know, creating systems that have checks and balances so we know who legitimately is uh, a resident or who's, you know, um, you know, applicable to receive certain funds. But that's not what is happening um, in government. And I agree totally with John that we need to invest more in technology to avoid fraud and abuse uh, moving forward. Absolutely. So uh, thank you for that. And another question thinking about California's future is, is uh, projecting future debt or obligation. And some questions have come up around uh, one from Richard Norton asking, how large is our unfunded pension liability? Uh, other people have been asking specifically about uh, CalPERS, CalSTRS. Uh, are they underfunded? If so, by, by what rate? They're accumulating a rate of return, I believe somewhere around 7%. Um, and yet uh, the worry is that it's maybe too toxic of an issue to, to bring up is too electric. Um, and what do you see as a way to deal with uh, the unfunded or underfunded uh, pension problem in California? Do you see it as a, as a big threat for our future? Okay, so I'll, I'll take a stab at it. And then John can uh, maybe piggyback since uh, we were both I'm a voting member of CalPERS and CalSTRS. Uh, Governor Brown, uh, when he was in office in 2012, uh, signed a number of bills that would reform some of our public pension systems in his PEPRA uh, are the initiatives for the reforms. And according to uh, these new reforms, uh, we should be balanced. Think 2045 for CalSTRS and 2050 by CalPERS. If we were continuing along the path that we were, we were on. Obviously, this pandemic now has significantly uh, slowed us down and is going to be an issue, but um, the pension systems uh, both have a rate of return of 7% as their goal, and we were hitting that uh, pre-pandemic, uh, but things are going to change, and now I think the goal post has probably moved a little bit further uh, during this pandemic. But I will say that our pension systems were set up initially for people to retire at the age of 55. And life expectancy was about 65 or 70. Today, people still retire at 55 and life expectancy is 95. 
right? It's gone up significantly. So you can see how a system that was set up, you know, 50, 60 years ago is not really keeping pace with what is happening today. So good for us for living longer. Now, the pension system is set up like your mortgage. If you own a home, you owe a certain amount on your home, the debt. That is your unfunded liability. Do you have to pay that every day? No, you are making payments on it, right? You're making your principal and your interest over 30 years. So that's similar to how the pension system is working. We do have an unfunded liability, but it's not like it's due today, right? And it is actuarial depending on how many people are retired, how many people are drawing on it, but it is making sure that we can make those payments over the next X amount of years. So I just wanted to just put that out there. Maybe John can elaborate. Yeah, uh, two factors to really pay attention to, uh, and Fiona alluded to them. Number one is uh, the longevity. The right if, if life expect if life expectancy increases just a year, right? The uh, it, it happened uh, during one of my later years as the state treasurer. I think life expectancy increased by a year and a half or so. It increased. It ballooned. Uh, that the unfunded obligation by about three billion, and that that's massive. The 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 numbers are produced very seriously and earnestly, uh, but the world is changing dramatically. The when when they built some of those investment expectations, not only were those numbers achievable early on, right? But the United the uh, what was actually occurring in the world, we were outperforming those numbers, right? But the United States during that early design was the most formidable economy. We're still the most formidable economy today, right? But the, uh, it's, it's, it's expected that China will surpass us by 2035. Part of that challenge is a lot of that investment happens here in the United States of America. We have the home field advantage. We have the rule of law. We have experience. We have people who are very well versed in the markets, right? As you have, as Asia becomes the region of the world that is the fastest growing, we don't have that same expertise. We don't have the same talent in the field to capture that, uh, the fully capture those expected returns in our portfolio. So the, we're going to have to figure out how to do that uh, relatively quickly. And then back to the earlier question, when you talk about the EDD fraud and the other things, the, you know, we need to implement best practices. The uh, people who are payment processes are in the private sector uh, have machine learning applications. So you may not catch the early fraud early on, but as you see patterns, right, we should have been able to capture some of that uh, illegitimate activity later on. One of the things that I advocated when I was in office is we need to make government designed holistically. We operate with so many agencies and silos, right? So if there is a... Uh, Mike Fong, our great LA Community College member who's on there, right? And he's in the system, the, uh, right? The, we ought to say, Hey, Mike, the pays these taxes. He's with this corporation. This corporation needs to file these documents. Or if he was on an un- unemployment insurance, the, you know, all these things so that government acts efficiently with him, right? The, you have that fraud, right? If you have people in our correctional facilities, rehabilitation facilities, and they're filing for unemployment, right? A wholly designed system should have triggered something. Hey, this needs a claims adjuster, right? Claims validation as to this particular 
to this particular warrant. And the fact that the, uh, you know, we, we don't have a long-term design in our technology. And then I saw some of the comments that were people making. It's like, why, why doesn't California, why have we always failed when, you know, we have the Silicon Valley? Well, government is designed and structured differently. We can't buy off-the-shelf software to fix, you know, to use that technology for California's issues. The, uh, I got attacked continuously. I was trying to do the largest modern-day payroll project in the United States of America, right? Nobody wanted to touch it. I was attacked by Pete Wilson's old uh, Department of Technology head, even though he didn't lead any massive technology projects when he was leading Pete Wilson's effort. And I, I had to keep my mouth shut, right? The One of the largest vendors, uh, they sued us. We sued them. We actually resettled and we prevailed. One of my two requests for... My successor as controller, Betty E, I said, Betty, continue that lawsuit. Why? What I couldn't mention is public is that we had evidence and we had the whistleblowers from that company saying that technology company was trying to cheat the state of California. So while I took three years of hits in the media and from other politicians, right, ultimately we prevailed. And did any, was that covered? Or more importantly, what were the lessons learned, right? So I convened a technology workforce to look at best procurement practices for technology for the state of California. And so, John, um, let's add how long it takes to issue an RFP for a major contract like that, uh, whereas businesses can say, oh, okay, let's, you know, purchase that and hire all these people and do it tomorrow. Government cannot issue sole source contracts. So whenever we issue uh, an RFP, this is a request for a proposal, sometimes it takes three years to put together that proposal and it has to be checked off by all the legal uh, team. And sometimes by the end of it, we don't even get that many vendors that want to participate because there's disclosure requirements, right? Transparency, a lot of, you know, bells and whistles. And so it's just not easy to employ the latest and the greatest technology when we need it. And it also happens in the legislature. So let Fiona today has a workforce workflow software program uh, that I went to the legislature uh, to ask for. We had major objections led by the Democratic caucus, the right, and, and, and I'm a Democrat. So the when I went to office, we did a review of uh, systems in the state treasurer's office. And so the we had all these agencies and somebody would ask me for a file and I would ask my chief of staff, where's the file, right? Three days later, I'm asking Colin Wong-Martinez, who's actually a graduate of Adorn Seif, a political science major. I said, hey, Colin, where, where's the file, right? The, I want to respond. This is like, this is embarrassing, the, right? I try to return people's call by the close of business. He said, staff is trying to still file it, right? I mentioned we had stuff in paper, so... We went to the legislature at the beginning of February. I took office at the beginning of January. Uh, the the powers that be say, reject the proposal. And they said, we agree with you on merit, but all legislative requests have to be submitted within the first three weeks or first three weeks of January. He said, hey, we needed a month to review that. And we were accelerating our review, right? So I had to humbly go beg Democratic legislators, right, saying, if, if you if you don't do this, I can't implement it until my third year, right? Because nothing happens this year. The second year, we go out for the request. The second year, if you give us the money, right, then we have to go through the RFP, right? The And if we're lucky and it all works, 
then we can implement it the third year. And then after too much time wasted, we finally got it through. What a tale. What a tale. It's a, I could appreciate the difficulty of navigating those bureaucracies. You know, a common question that we're seeing in the chat is related to, to taxation and the concern about uh, big capital leaving the state of California. The governors of Texas and Florida have been very vocal in their efforts to try to attract some of our businesses to their states. And I think Thomas O'Connor asked this phrase, uh, asked the question this way. He said, do you see the state Republican Party and I'll add Democratic Party supporting legislative change in the state tax code to become less reliant on millionaires and avoid uh, the bust and boom uh, revenue cycle? Uh, the other similar uh, questions were related to concerns about high taxation in California and whether it's driving people out of the state. I wonder if you can speak to the point about uh, our state tax code uh, and whether or not it is overly burdensome and it is driving people out of state. Well, I mean, I think I would like to invite Jim Brulte also to join me, but being in the legislature, I know that we talk about all of these tax reforms that we would like to see, specifically how dependent we are on high net worth individuals, uh, income tax, corporate income tax, as well as sales taxes, but it requires a two-thirds vote to get it through the legislature. And whenever you try to do anything, uh, stakeholders come out of the woodwork and go, well, don't tax me or don't change this. And, and then, you know, legislators are stymied. So the other alternative is to go to the ballot. Uh, the legislature, through a two-thirds vote, can put an initiative on the ballot. But again, it requires two-thirds of the legislature, which is not easy to get. Or you get signatures through signature gatherers, and then you can go to the ballot. Uh, and then it's left to the voters, which is what Jerry Brown did for most of his eight-year term, except for uh, the last one having to do with the gas tax, which he signed. But maybe, Jim, maybe you could talk about how hard it is to change our tax code and our um, over-dependence on certain revenue sources. Well, the personal income tax is a huge part of the general fund, and it shouldn't. I mean, when the economy catches a cold, the general fund gets the flu. Um, uh, first of all, in the old days, you could have uh, Republican support for raising taxes. Um, wasn't a regular support, but it did occur. But it also took uh, Republican support to pass a budget. Once, um, once passing a budget went down to the 50% threshold, uh, you really dealt out Republicans on, on the issue of raising taxes because no Republican in their right mind is going to raise taxes requiring a two-thirds vote to allow spending at a 50% vote. Um, we saw, um, you know, we saw this almost immediately after the cap and uh, trade vote. We had some Republicans vote for it. And then, you know, California turned around and um, required union contracts to have access to some of that money, which was antithetical to what re Republicans wanted. Um, you know, Democrats have 31 state senators out of uh, 40. Uh, they can raise taxes if they want. I think last time I checked, there were 58 or 59. Uh, strike that. Yeah, there's a two-thirds vote in the assembly as well. I think there's 71 or 72 Democrats, 61 or 62 Democrats in the assembly. So I don't think you're going to see Republicans uh, voting to raise taxes when it requires um, 
50% on spending. And let me just give you one real world example I was involved with right after I left. I, I voted for, I voted for a, a park bond. It took a two thirds vote. I think we passed that in 2003 or 2004. 96% of the discretionary money from that park bond went into Democrat districts. Um, because even though the park bond was, was passed while Schwarzenegger was governor, a lot of it was spent uh, later on. And so Republicans have effectively been dealt out. The minority party has effectively been dealt out of the budgeting process. Folks, we, we obviously have a lot of questions. There's 46 of them in our, in our discussion, and we're coming up on time. I believe our conversation is slated to end at 1.15, and I'm showing 1.13. Uh, so if I, uh, if I can, I'm, I will just, uh, uh, as a point of privilege for the remaining two minutes, just ask Madam uh, Treasurer Fiona Ma and our former Treasurer, Mr. Chung, uh, if you can just give us your, your concluding thoughts about the state of California and our future. We want to be optimistic about our future, so I'm hoping you can leave us on an optimistic note. Well, thank you. All of the attendees on this webinar are the future. So I would encourage all of you to get more involved, whether it's at the policy level, whether, you know, I've had over a thousand interns come intern in my office, uh, look to work in government, because government is different from the private sector, but we need bright minds who want to get things done uh, and look at best practices and keep pushing against the status quo. So that's my uh, encouragement for all the young people is don't complain, join us and help us fix the problems that we are all talking about. So I want to thank the uh, center the uh, for hosting this program at Herb Klein and the supporters. Uh, Kami, thank you for thinking of me for, the, for serving as a fellow. It's an incredible privilege. What America needs is we need more Jim Broltys on the Republican side. We need a sense of decency and dignity uh, as to the human spirit. The, and about this time last week, uh, I don't know if any of you were glued to your tubes or whatever, your uh, mobiles, the eyes in front of a computer. And we were, I was in a Zoom meeting and then we deflected that meeting to watch Perseverance and Ingenuity, the helicopter in Perse- is called Ingenuity, land on Mars, right? And it's, the, it's what America can achieve. And it reminds me of when I was, the summer of when I was six turning seven, man landed on moon. I'm showing how old I am. But America, as it was then, as it is today, with our human genius, we still act immaturely. We haven't grown where we have this incredible divide based on artificial differences. We're looking for differences where, as I said, we have to compete in a global economy. And if we don't do well, this Gini coefficient, this incredible opportunity and wealth divide is going to get worse for California and in America. Uh, I wanted to say this, the... I want to thank the folks out there who are acting morally, the greater aspirational to make sure that people aren't left behind. I was lucky that Dave Jones was in office because oftentimes when I was telling my story of growing up, Dave and I went to high school together and I was talking about violence against Asians. People said that's not true, right? And David said that was very true, right? My high school classmates who live in California, some of them actually experienced it. One of them said her brother was part of that, right? The creating that devastation to our house. We need each other more than ever in America. So to USC, Kami, your efforts and others, thank you, right? This is part of the healing and growing that is needed more than ever. 
Thank you for those beautiful closing sentiments. Uh, Fiona Ma, John Chung, Jim Brulte, we're so grateful for your time and insights and energy. Uh, to those of you in the U.S. USC community, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, that concludes our 15th annual Herbert G. Klein Lecture. The tip of the hat uh, to the legacy of Herb G. Klein. Uh, thank you so much to the family for, uh, for uh, making this event possible. Uh, folks, we'll see you at the next event. Have a beautiful rest of your week. Uh, and thanks again, folks. May our futures be bright. Thank you for joining us on The Bully Pulpit. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at USC P-O-L Future. That's USC P-O-L Future. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube and visit our website for upcoming programs.